If you have kids between two, ages two and five and you would like to check them in and storehouse uh, kids on the second floor, you can do so at this moment. In the event that you, you didn't know, Storehouse Kids, which serves as our kids' ministry, they gather twice, uh, twice a month. I think it's the second and the fourth Sunday of every month. And so if you'd like to sign your kids in, you can do so at this moment. Um, but let's uh, get started with our time. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you this morning and hang out with you and preach God's word. And we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. So let me invite you uh, to join me in Colossians 1. We're going to be looking at verses 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. So uh, while you open or load your Bible... I really just have one update for you, and then I'd love to, to just be, uh, dive into our time. Uh, the quick update is, if, if you are new, we'd love to hang out with you. Uh, we love the neighborhood pub at Roosevelt's or coffee shops. We want to hang out with you. And so if you are new, fill out a Connect card, whether they are on your chairs or you can visit our website. Um, fill it out, and someone will get back with you in 24 hours. Uh, because that's how badly we, we, we want to take you out. Um, in addition to that, even if you don't have questions uh, about Storehouse, you have prayer requests, submit them on that so that we can pray over you. Uh, in addition to that, um, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there should be some Bibles on the rows where you are. Uh, that's our gift to you. So take one with you. Uh, if you uh, have one and you know someone that doesn't, take one with you anyway and hook them up. So once again, if you're just gathering or you're just getting here, Colossians 1 verses 24 through chapter 2 verse 5. Um, you can tell by uh, the graphic behind me that this morning we're going to continue in our series in Colossians, not to mention I just told you to go to Colossians. And so we're going to continue our series in Colossians. And so uh, what I'd like to do is provide you with a brief overview of what God has said through the Apostle Paul up, in, up until now. And so when we opened and started Colossians, we see the Apostle Paul greet this small young church in the city of Colossae, and he uh, is writing to them um, by writing to them to encourage them, but to also to, to prep them for some things that are coming. And we're going to get into that a little bit today. But he opens this letter with a prayer of thanksgiving. And what was so beautiful and so compelling and so convicting about this prayer of thanksgiving from the Apostle Paul is that what led him to uh, be incredibly thankful for the Colossians was primarily God's work in him. In other words, thanksgiving was this overflow of his identity in Christ, and he couldn't contain it upon hearing some good news about the Colossians, and so he praises and he thanks God for his work in the Colossians. As Paul's prayer continues, he transitions into spiritual growth, and so he opens with the prayer of thanksgiving, and he continues with the prayer for spiritual growth, in that as much as he is thankful for the salvation that they have received, he is also praying that they would continue to grow in this salvation. 
And he says things like, I want you to continue to bear fruit and to increase in your knowledge of God and to to be strengthened and to give thanks. And every time Paul encourages the Colossians, he ties it back to the beautiful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As he prays for their growth in their relationship with Christ, he reminds them, hey, this is possible. You can do this because you have been redeemed. You have been set free. You have been set free from bondage. You belong to Christ. The Spirit of God dwells in you. You can do this. And it was almost as if the mere thought of Christ launches the Apostle Paul into this dense, Christological section of Scripture, this section, this praise of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for his people. And he opens up this section, and it's verse 15, and he opens up this section by saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That is, that Jesus is the very nature of God himself. And so in this section, Paul is simply praising God for who he is. He is praising Jesus for his supremacy and preeminence over everything, transitioning into the sufficiency of Christ. That in Christ, all things are reconciled. And he even makes it personal so that it's not such a 50,000 foot view. He makes it personal by talking to the Colossians and saying, and you, and you who were alienated, and you who were hostile in your mind that is unable to please God, you who were doing evil deeds, you have been reconciled to Christ, or you have been reconciled to the Father through Christ's work on the cross. And so the practical application, if you will, of our time last week was praise. In our time last week, I told you the supremacy of Christ assures us of the sufficiency of Christ. And so what must we do? Similar to the, to, the, to the people in Acts when the apostle Peter is preaching and he is preaching repentance and he is preaching the glory of God and they interrupt his sermon and he says, brother, they tell him, brothers, what must we do? And he says, repent. Likewise, in this section, as Paul is praising Jesus for who he is and what he has done, we must ask, brother, what must we do? And he says, praise him. Praise Jesus. And now we turn to a new section. And in this section, it is a transition. He is going to begin to further explain as to why he is writing to this church. He's going to essentially transition by saying, this is how we practice our theology. This is how you put into practice what you believe. See, if you read the scriptures, and in particular the the New Testament, and if you're familiar with the Apostle Paul's structure, uh, his letters oftentimes are broken up into two giant pieces. And the first section is God's work 
for the sinner. And he begins to unpack all that God is and all who Jesus is and what he has done. And he addresses our hearts and he addresses our sin nature and he reminds us of the gospel just like he reminds the Colossians of Christ's work for them. And then somewhere in the middle of his letters, he transitions by saying, now this is how you're gonna apply this salvation to your daily life. And that's where we find ourselves this morning, classic Paul, where he transitions into, this is what theology and practice looks like. And so as we begin our time, and in this section, I want to open with a question. And I don't want to hear shouted answers. I want you to think. The question is, do you love the church? Do you love the church? If our view of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done pours out into our daily lives, then if you didn't know, now you know, Christian, you are in ministry. Therefore, do you love the church? Do you love her in all of her imperfections? Do you love the beautiful complexities that come with the bride of Christ? And do you trust that Jesus is the one who keeps his faithfulness to the unfaithful bride? That when you look at the church, you can't help but fix your eyes on Christ. This is the heart and challenge and bottom line of the Apostle Paul in our text this morning. So let me begin by saying that a love for the church begins with a love for God. And then from there, that pours out onto one another. It pours out onto the people of God. So I'm going to pray, or I'm going to read the scripture, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dig in and we're, we'll park in verses 24 through 27 first. Once again, Colossians 1, beginning in verse 24, here's what God says through Paul. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim with all wisdom that we may, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, all, excuse me, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. God, as we come before you in, in, in prayer and as our hearts are prepared to examine your word, Holy Spirit, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us grace? Would you give us humility as we examine and engage your word? Would you be at work in us, discerning the attentions of our hearts? And through your word, would you draw us to the beauty and splendor of Christ? And so as we dive in, would you give us understanding? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna park in, in verses 24 to 27, and uh, we're gonna look at four sections in this large part of scripture. We're gonna look at Paul's heart for the church, and I'll give you two of them right now because um, I don't remember the other two. So I'm gonna give you two of them. We're gonna look at Paul's heart for the church. We're gonna look at his mission to the church. Uh, we're gonna look at what maturity looks like within the church. And then finally, Paul is going to conclude this section with a warning to the church. So we're gonna begin in verses 24 to 27. And as I mentioned earlier, Paul is now beginning to transition into the practical working out of, uh, of the Colossians' salvation. In a moment uh, toward chapter two or in chapter two, Paul will begin to provide reasons as to why he is writing to the Colossians. And uh, if you weren't here when we opened up Colossians, this will give you further clarity as to why he is writing to this small and young church in the city of Colossae. And so Paul begins verse 24 by saying, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Oftentimes, the word now can imply a transition. In other words, in light of everything that I have said, now let me tell you about this. But the word now isn't so much a transition, but in effect, a present tense. In other words, in light of everything that I've just told you about Christ, I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in the sufferings I am experiencing now. And so here's the overview of these three verses. The overview is that Paul loves the church. And part of loving the church is experiencing suffering for the sake of the blessing of others. Once again, he says it this way, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And then he continues and he says something really interesting. He says, <clears throat> I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. This is one of the most debated verses in the New Testament. Is Paul suggesting that the redemptive work of Christ is incomplete? What does it mean? I like to approach verses like this by tackling what it doesn't mean first. 
And so what Paul does not mean when he says this is, what he doesn't mean is that Christ's death on the cross, that is the atonement, the the means by which sinners are reconciled to God the Father, he is not saying that it is ineffective or incomplete. If Paul was saying that, then that would be a direct contradiction to what he has said in verses 13 through 14 and in our text from last week, 15 all the way to 23. So he is not saying that the atonement is ineffective or incomplete. He is also not saying that he suffers for the redemptive purposes of the Colossians. He is writing to a church that they are already Christians. They have been saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. So he is not writing for their redemptive purpose to make up something. However, what it does mean is that what is true of Christ is true of Christians. We will suffer as Christ suffered. The Apostle Peter says it similarly in chapter 4 of his first epistle. He says that we will suffer just as Christ suffered. So when suffering takes place, do not be surprised at what is happening. Suffering is sometimes social. You experience social rejection. Sometimes it's familial. Some of you have experienced that even in your families as you've become a Christian, where you were rejected and dismissed. Suffering also is in the form of physical suffering. Paul says it in that same verse. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. If you travel to 2 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 12. I could be wrong. Paul lists the various sufferings that he has endured for the sake of the church. He has endured riots, beatings, he was shipwrecked, left for dead, hunger, shelter. We will suffer. Now here's one thing we need to know. Suffering is almost foreign in the American church. It is almost foreign, oftentimes equating and confusing inconvenience with suffering or persecution, complaint with trials and tribulation. For the most part, the American church, that is you and I, have not experienced persecution, imprisonment, suffering. I'm not saying that we are free from it, so don't hear that. But for the most part, many of us go as far to say, I'm experiencing persecution because I've been inconvenienced. You may not word it that way, and it may not look that way on paper or in your journal, but it does look like that in practice. Are you willing to suffer or to be inconvenienced for the sake of others to be blessed? The truth is, I don't know. Because in the context of the church, and in particular our church, 
I don't know that you like to be inconvenienced. When it comes to, for instance, the areas of serving the church, because when it comes to the Sunday morning gathering, there's a couple of things that we have said. Number one, us gathered here on Sunday, we are the fruit of the resurrection. That is why we gather on Sunday. And so the purpose of Sunday is to have this high view of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and his lordship and his kingship. And so that happens through the proclamation of God's word primarily, but it also happens through experience. And sometimes I see Christians inconvenienced because they got to serve once a month and say hi at a door. I see the same people hustling because some are struggling with this. You know, you're not struggling, you're just in sin. So don't equate that with suffering. You're just being inconvenienced. Are you willing to be even at most inconvenienced so that others would be blessed, church? In this verse, Paul is saying that though suffering is inevitable, he rejoices, not because of his circumstance, but because of his standing with Christ. And so Paul says that suffering is worth it. The beatings I have endured are worth it. They are worth it because his heart is more for people to know Jesus and for the church to know Christ and desire Christ more deeply. It is consistent with what he says elsewhere. In 2 Timothy 2.10, he says it this way, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is Christ that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul says, I will go anywhere, I will preach to whoever, I will do whatever it takes and endure all things for the sake of more people coming to know Jesus and for the church to grow in her relationship with Christ, to grow more deep in her desire for the beauty and splendor of Christ. I will endure it all. So are we willing to be merely inconvenienced for the same? Are we willing to endure suffering so that others would be blessed? Suffering isn't something simply spiritual. It is sanctifying. Too many Christians want to be spiritual, but not enough want to be godly. Too many Christians want to complain, but not enough want to confess their sin. Can you suffer and rejoice because of where you stand with Christ for the blessing of others? Paul continues. Paul continues by saying that he suffers for the sake of the body, that is the church, of which I became a minister. Another word for that would be servant, according to the stewardship from God. He's telling the Colossians that as a servant, he has been entrusted with the gospel of Christ. 
and his role is one giant run-on sentence that we'll get into in just a moment. But that's what he says. He says, I endure suffering so that others would know Christ and for the blessing of others because I have received this message. I have become a steward. God has not only transformed my heart, but my identity, that I am now a steward of this message. And my goal, my mission, my desire, my heart for the church is that she would know Christ more. And he says it as he continues. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. That's what gives him the the endurance to go wherever and preach to whoever. Because he is a steward of this message of Christ. And it's it's a continuation. If you are familiar with Paul, he loves run-on sentences. And so he says to make the word of God fully known, that is, I will preach anywhere. I will go to any synagogue and teach about Christ. I want to continue to plant churches so that the mission of God would continue to be expanded. I will disciple men and women so that we can send more people out so that they would proclaim the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ that I have just told you about. And when he talks about the mystery, it's not necessarily talking about something that is hidden. It means something that simply has not been revealed yet, not necessarily a mystery like you and I would watch Unsolved Mysteries. Because if we travel back to the Old Testament, clearly the people of God had an understanding of the coming of a Messiah. So things were being uh, displayed and revealed And so he continues, and I'll unpack this more. He continues, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, that is the people of God. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery. Here it is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, unless you are Jewish, if you didn't know, you're a Gentile. Okay, that's what it means in the Greek. You're a Gentile. The beauty of that is that God in his mercy and his grace has folded us into his plan of redemption. He has grafted us in to his purpose or his redemptive purpose among his people. That is what he has done for you. That is what Paul has, like in light of everything that he's saying, he's constantly reminding them of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them. And one of the things, one of the biggest things is you have been grafted into, you have been folded into God's redemptive plan and story. Too many Christians know stories about the Bible, but they don't know the Bible. They know stories about God, but they don't know the story of God. Paul here is reminding them, you have been folded in to his redemptive plan and purpose. How? Christ is in you. You have an eternal hope, eternal sonship with Christ because of what he has done for you. 
though suffering is inevitable, it is not useless, but sanctifying. Therefore, a heart for the church rejoices in the suffering for the blessings of others. Moving along, verse 28, Paul continues to explain, or continues by explaining his mission to the church. So we have seen his heart for the church, and now we are seeing his mission to the church. And I would say that this is the focal point of this section, because Essentially, he is saying, in light of everything that I have told you, the thankfulness, the prayer for spiritual growth, the praise on the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, the suffering that you will endure, he goes on to open verse 28, and I love it. He says, in light of everything that I have told you, we, the church, proclaim Christ. Verse 28, him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I told you at the beginning, you are in ministry. You are in ministry. Therefore, you need to know that gospel-centered ministry requires us to proclaim Christ. If you want to know what it is that you should say and what you should proclaim and what you should preach, verse 28, him we proclaim. This verse reminded me of an individual that wanted to teach in our church long ago. And uh, they wanted me to help them and, and, and obviously encourage them to, to take up an opportunity and, and, and teach in a couple of areas. And when I looked at their outline, and as I'm working through their outline, there are several biblical truths that are sprinkled across the outline. Um, and there were several things uh, regarding what they were experiencing in that season or in that week. And one of the things that I noticed in their outline was that at no point was Christ proclaimed. You could have really good, like, tweetable Christian quotes you can have some really good knowledge and understanding of God's Word. You could even be a really, really good teacher and void of Christ. Gospel-centered ministry requires us to proclaim the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Why? Paul tells us at the closing of that verse, the purpose of proclaiming Christ is so that we would mature one another. He says everyone three times. And he encourages the Colossians to warn like a prophet, teach like an evangelist, and apply wisdom like a counselor. So let's look at those briefly. As Paul tells them, warning everyone, I mentioned warn like a prophet, what, were the, what was the, uh, one of the main roles of the prophets? They were sent by God to the people of God to preach repentance. Repent and return. Repent and return. And so part of our role is to warn like prophets. That means we need to know about false teaching. That means we need to preach confession and repentance and point people to Jesus. Don't repent and return to me. Repent and return to Jesus. He says that we must teach like an evangelist. That means we need to know the gospel. 
We need to know the gospel. We need to know that salvation is in and through Christ alone. We need to know that faith is not blind, that grace is unmerited favor from God to sinners. Oftentimes in groups, I love asking the question, what is the gospel? Because most look like deers caught in the headlight. The what? I'm sorry? The gospel. Yep. (laughs) Teaching in this context can also mean to admonish one another. Admonishing means to strongly warn and to teach one another on half-grasped ideas, confusion within doctrine. Defend the gospel. He says that we must apply wisdom like a counselor. And what is wisdom but skill at applying knowledge in life? These efforts, warning, teaching, and applying wisdom are in part our identity and our activity. This is what we do. This is how we mature one another to present one another mature in Christ. Church, I say this a lot, and sometimes it sounds like, I suppose, a broken record, but I think that's a dumb way of saying it. You must know your Bible. Too many individuals in our church are unable to protect their families. Too many individuals in our church are unable to defend the gospel, stand firm in their faith. My role as pastor is to preach God's word primarily, and this is where you get fed. And what do we do when we get fed? We work it off by actually applying it because you got energy, you got nutrition. So stop consuming. We must know our Bibles. Too many of us don't. Some of you know some really, really good doctrines, and you have no idea where that is found in Scripture. Sometimes because it's not. Paul continues, verse 29. For this, in other words, in light of everything I just told you, for this, the the maturing of one another, he says, for this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The word struggling here isn't, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that there's hardship. It's actually uh, rooted in athletic uh, phraseology. And so the word struggling here means to compete in the games. If you read through Paul's letters, he often uses athletic Uh, analogy to uh, illustrate whatever it is that he is saying. And so he's doing something similar here and in verse one of chapter two. So when he says that he is struggling, it's not necessarily hardship. He's talking about he's on the grind. You know what I'm saying? Like he is on the grind. What What he means is as he has been entrusted, as he is a steward entrusted with the gospel of Christ, what he is doing is he's gonna get to the grind. He's gonna get to work. And that work isn't half hearted. That work, he's not going to preach obscurely. He's not lazy about it. 
elsewhere to the Corinthians, he tells them that when it comes to the other apostles, he says, I outworked them. He's on that grind. Because gospel-centered ministry takes grit. And he's on that grind. So he's not preaching half-heartedly. He's not teaching obscurities. He's not lazy, but at the same time, he knows that it's not all up to him either. He says it in that same verse. I toil struggling with all his energy. That though he proclaims Christ, Christ is also the source of his energy. The source of his ministry. Paul's goal is that as we mature one another, that we would be conformed more and more into the image of God. And so he's ready to go. Paul's one of those guys that, hey, I've wasted enough time. I'm ready to go. At the heart of the mission of the church is the proclamation of Christ. Into chapter 2. Here, Paul explains what this maturity, what we just looked at in verse 28, what this maturity in the church looks like. And this is important because oftentimes uh, we will look at the previous verses only with a 50,000 foot view. Um, But again, here in chapter 2 is where the apostle begins to make his transition, showing what theology looks like in practice. And while later on in this letter he will write about what that looks like in the context of our ethics and our relationships and our vocation. Here, he begins with a couple of marks of maturity within the church. And he provides three. And we're going to look at these three marks of maturity. These aren't the only marks of maturity for the church, but for now, we're going to look at what uh, God says through Paul in the opening of chapter two. So this is what he says. For I want you to know how great a struggle, we just unpacked that word a little bit, for how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. Laodicea is a neighboring city. Uh, There's also a church there. We read about Laodicea in Revelation. Don't be afraid of Revelation. It's about God, not you. All right, here we go. And for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Once again, if, if, if you're new, um, the church that he is writing to in Colossae, the Colossian church, Paul didn't plant this church. In other words, he didn't start this church. Um, he has not seen these people face to face. In fact, he is writing to them uh, because he has received a report from basically their, their pastor. His name is Epaphras. We heard about him in chapter one. We'll hear about him again in chapter four. And, uh, and so he is writing to them because he has received this report from Epaphras. So, so he's never been to Colossae. Nevertheless, <clears throat> he says, um, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Here we go. Here are the marks. Beginning of verse two, he says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Now here it is, classic Paul run-on sentence. This is one. Being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay? Well, let's look at each one. Each one's going to require us to do a little bit of work, a little bit of thinking. 
<clears throat> and so Paul says, hey, I've, uh, this is my struggle, but here's why I'm writing to you, all right? So that we would, or so that you would mature one another and present one another as mature in Christ. And so, so how do we present one another? By constantly preaching the gospel to one another. Well, well then what does that look like? Well, it looks like our hearts being encouraged. Now, with this language, it seems to suggest uh, that Paul is kind of writing like a hallmark letter. Like, I want your heart encouraged, brother. Uh, but that's not what he's saying. That's not the tone in which Paul says it. When he writes the word hearts or heart in here, again, he's not talking about their affection. Okay? He's, he's, not, he's not writing them a hallmark letter. Right? He's not writing hearts on the outskirts of this letter. When he, when he writes the word heart, what he is talking about is not their affection, but the executive part of what makes you make decisions. The central part of your thought process. That, that part in your heart, that crevice where all of your decisions and your choices come from, where you need to practice discernment and thinking through things and you have a thought process and it leads you to make a decision. That's what Paul is talking about. Once again, he's not referring to their affection. And then he says that he wants their hearts encouraged. The word encouraged could be better translated as strengthened. So when he says that he is writing to them so that their hearts would be strengthened, it is that this area in their heart, that executive part, the one that makes decisions, the central part of a person, that that would be strengthened. And he continues, and we're going to tie this in together in a little bit, and he continues. Well, I should say, the first mark of maturity is that our hearts would be strengthened. The second one, he says, being knit together in love. On the word being, you see that an ing, what's that called? It's a participle, okay? It means ongoing. So these marks of maturity aren't checklists. Instead, they are cyclical. These are things that we are doing together and with one another and for one another so that we would grow in our maturity. So being means ongoing, not just a one-time thing. Together, right? I'm breaking this all down like as if we don't know. Being knit, that we would be drawn to one another as our eyes are fixed on Christ, that we would draw on one another. Together, you need to know that ministry is Christ-centered. Maturity is community-focused. Maturity in Christ does not happen in isolation. And nor does it happen apart from his word. And so he says, being knit together in love. Love still isn't so much affection, though it is part of that. But affection, but, the, but when he says love here, he's referring to the ongoing work of Christians responding to the work of God in them. That's sanctification. Growing in Christ, putting sin to death, being more like Jesus. This happens in the context of community. And as we do this, and because our ministry is Christ-centered, we strengthen one another's hearts. And how do we strengthen one another's hearts? By warning like a prophet, teaching like an evangelist, applying wisdom like a counselor. It's all tied. And so finally, he gives a third 
mark for maturity. It's that long run-on sentence. I've just simplified it to knowledge, satisfaction, and assurance in Christ. In verse 3, he says, In Christ in whom all, excuse me, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom, of knowledge. Again, the word hidden doesn't mean you can't find it. That for the Christian, as the Christian engages God's word because the Spirit of God dwells in the Christian, he reveals himself to them. For what? So that we would know more about God? so that it would pour out in our daily lives. And then what happens? We do it again. We grow in our knowledge of God and it pours out into our daily lives. And so we grow so that we would obey, so that we would obey more. (laughs) In this brief verse or run-on sentence, Paul is essentially saying, because Christ is in us, we can know and grow in our knowledge and depth of Christ. Therefore, church, search the scriptures. Search the scriptures. Some of you have a lot of knowledge, and I'm incredibly thankful for you. But many of you do not apply that knowledge. And the Bible would call that foolish and arrogant Some of you have a lot of knowledge about really good things and I learn from you and others learn from you and you also have knowledge about things that don't matter. He says that we would have assurance and understanding and wisdom. And some of you are some of the most wise, full of wisdom people to like walk this earth and you have discipled me so much because I have so much to learn. You are an example to our church. So thank you. And some of you think wisdom is weakness when in reality you're simply preaching a sermon about yourself. What bridges knowledge and wisdom? Humility. Humility. As Paul says, for us to continue to search the scriptures so that we would have full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom all hidden are the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, ultimately what he's saying is you will never stop growing. That as you search the scriptures, you will not stop growing. And this is how we mature one another. This is what maturity looks like. As we continue to grow, we continue to mature one another. Ministry, our ministry is Christ-centered. Our maturity is community-focused. And finally, Paul issues a warning to the church in Colossae. This is verses 4 and 5. Paul says this. I say this everything that he has said. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. This is the first indication of why Paul is writing to Colossians. He will expand on this as we dive deeper into chapter two. It's not like you can't continue reading after this. It's not like 
it ends here and I give you some scripture later. Like you can, you will see a little bit more. But nevertheless, this is the first indication as to why Paul uh, is writing to the church in Colossae. And so he continues. I say this in order that no one may delude you, that is, deceive you, with plausible arguments. Let's park there for a little bit. The word plausible here means reasonable. In other words, sometimes the teachings, whether they're false, actually in this case, yes, as they're false, as they come before the church, they're not random Some of them aren't necessarily not thought through. They're actually very well thought through. Some of them might even be steeped in tradition. Some of them are academic. And that's what plausible arguments consist of. And oftentimes when we read uh, letters like Colossians, and we see that Paul is talking about false teaching, oftentimes us as the church, we think, well, yeah, those are things that affected the first century. They clearly won't affect us now. There are things that are different. And while there are things that are different, plausible arguments still exist. They consist of academic intellect. That might be one of you. Not that you're preaching false uh, gospel, but the fact that, man, you encounter or engage academic, plausible arguments that are trying to tear down the Christian faith. Plausible arguments also consist of sociological tools and practices things that are good, things that might even work. And there's a press to tear down the Christian faith. Or sometimes plausible arguments is false teaching. So here's Paul's concern. He doesn't want them to be swayed by plausible arguments. Here's my concern. Oftentimes we encounter, not always, and I'm being very general, so I don't think this is the only thing, two kinds of Christians. Those who are easily deceived, and then those who are willfully ignorant. Those who are easily deceived, they embrace false doctrine and practice. They deny the gospel rather than looking at these doctrines through the lens of Scripture. And while it might not be shown on paper, in practice, they embrace a different gospel. They embrace an additional gospel. Or they use other tools and practices to interpret or to filter their thoughts through Scripture. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Then you got those who are willfully ignorant those that ignore intellectual thought and debate, that they put themselves in a bubble, that they ignore what's happening in the church. I just, I don't want to talk about that. That's that's too hard. They ignore what's happening in the church. They ignore some of these arguments, and so they retreat from these arguments. Both of these individuals denies the gospel either by embracing or adding another gospel or simply by neglecting the true gospel. And so those who are easily deceived are unable to defend what they actually believe. 
Those who are easily deceived embrace teaching because it makes sense and it was sprinkled with even biblical truth. Those who are easily deceived will take tools and practices that may be good and that may be helpful, but make them into gospel. One of the funniest crazes is the Enneagram. It's a personality test. Helps you understand a bunch of different things about yourself. That's cool. No one cares about your number. Okay? Like you rate on a scale of one to nine. Promise you no one cares. Okay? But for many, that seems to be something to embrace so that they would interpret Scripture rather than actually going to Scripture itself. And then you got the willfully ignorant. Again, they ignore intellectual thought. They ignore some of these plausible arguments. They put themselves in a bubble. They embrace a different gospel because the gospel advances through suffering, advances through a variety of means that are going to be uncomfortable for you, but you are unable to do it because you put yourself in a box and you even risk becoming legalistic. Both individuals deny the gospel. You remember the gospel. That God entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ. That he lived the life that you and I cannot live and died the death that you and I deserve to die and then freely offers us the grace of his salvation that you and I cannot earn. And that upon the cross, he says, it is finished. The work by means we are reconciled to the Father is accomplished through Christ. And the fact that we gather is a demonstration or fruit of his resurrection through the power of the Holy Spirit. And for the one who repents and believes and submits and surrenders themselves to the Lordship of Jesus, the Spirit of God dwells in them, transforming their hearts, renewing their minds. That is the gospel. And too many Christians, including ones in Storehouse McAllen, are easily deceived or willfully ignorant. And you can hear Paul's frustration, for instance, in Galatians 3 where he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? In the opening chapter of Galatians 1, he goes on to talk about what other gospel have you heard that you have now embraced? As the church, we must repent. As the church, we need to put that on the table. Because either one of these or a different breed preaches that Christ is not sufficient. And if Christ isn't sufficient, then he is not supreme or preeminent. Knowledge and wisdom help us to engage these arguments. And the mature in Christ are theologically stable. That doesn't mean that they know everything, but it doesn't mean that they're complacent either. I had a saint tell me this week, too many Christians are on the sidelines and not enough are in the game. I could not agree further. Too many Christians are on the sidelines 
And the sidelines are super tempting to stay there because there's little to no responsibility there. Therefore, as we mature one another, are we willing to suffer at the same time? Paul concludes this section in verse 5. He concludes this warning with, with military terms. He tells them, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. He wishes he was there with them. I rejoice to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Those are military terms. As a general inspects his army before they head into battle, making sure they have everything that they need. If you've ever watched a uh, band of brothers, there's this clip. It's, it's the, the 501, the paratroopers. In this clip, they're, uh, they're going to head into D-Day, or the day before D-Day, excuse me. And one of the paratroopers lists all of the things that he has to carry in his pack. And each paratrooper is responsible for checking that they all have what they need. And he goes on to list his, his, his 1911, his M1 Garand, his bandages, his rations, his shovel, his parachute, his emergency parachute. And one of them had brass knuckles and his knife and his boots. And he just goes on. The list seems endless. And then the responsibility of his brothers in arms was to make sure that he had everything that they needed and his responsibility was to make sure that they had everything that they needed. And before they went out, they got this big speech from their commanding officer. And that's what Paul does to the Colossians. Just like a general inspects his army as they are headed into battle, Paul rejoices in this with the Colossians because ultimately what he is telling them is false teaching is coming. It's already in your city. False teaching is coming. It's going to come from outside the church. It's going to come from within the ranks. And you need to be ready. And I rejoice because of the firmness in your faith. Knowledge and wisdom in Christ allow us to grow in our relationship with Christ, but also to be ready. Paul just described his heart for the church, his mission to the church, maturity within the church, in, order, in other words, what that looks like. And he presents them with a warning. And this is for us today. This is your church. This is your church. Our ministry is to proclaim Christ to everyone inside and outside of the church. One of the biggest lies that we can adopt is that everyone in here is a Christian. Therefore, we preach Christ inside and outside. We mature one another with the gospel. We encourage one another's hearts to stand firm in our faith. And these things, these efforts are made possible specifically because of who Jesus is. In the church, I see this temptation for pens to start flying when the sermon is about 
the four things that you need to do to improve your spiritual blah, blah, blah. But when it comes to praise the king of kings, it falls on deaf ears because that's old news. May we not be that kind of church. May we be the kind of church that praises the King of kings and the Lord of lords for his supremacy and his sufficiency. Christ-centered ministry, or excuse me, ministry is Christ-centered. Maturity is community-focused, and that pours out into one another. Let us walk in Christ, proclaiming him, maturing one another in Christ. Christ is not only the subject of our proclamation, he is our identity. He is our energy source. He is our savior. He is sufficient. He is supreme and preeminent above all. Let us not stop proclaiming him until we see him. So Christian, here's where we conclude. Where do you deny the sufficiency of Christ? Where might you deny the gospel? Is your view of the supremacy of Christ rooted in God's revelation of himself? We're going to keep slowing things down, so, so think on that. And if there are areas of, of idols or areas where you neglect the sufficiency of Christ in practice, we, and we will, we're going to drop the ball on that. Let us confess that before the Lord now. And if you're not a Christian, man, let me just apologize for the church. The church can sometimes be brash and hurtful and not cool. And I'm sorry. And you are still in darkness if you do not know Jesus. It's my jam right there. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Should have let it kept going. It would have added some drama. If you're not a Christian man, and your experience in the church has been poor and been brash, let me let me just apologize. And you are still in darkness. You are an enemy of God. You are at war with God. And in Christ, he invites you to know him. And he is ready to pardon any sinner who would turn to him in faith and repentance. And he gives several promises upon that. A new heart, a renewed mind, and that he is the faithful one. One of my, one of my favorite verses is in Jeremiah 31 where he says, I have called you with an everlasting love. I have kept my faithfulness to you. He is the faithful one. And so you can trust in him today. A heart for the church, Storehouse McAllen. A heart for the church begins with a love for God and pours out into one another for his glory 
and our good. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you in, in prayer, I'm just going to put it on the table. Our hearts are prone to wander. That hymn tells us our hearts are prone to wander, that we feel it. God, I hope that we feel it. I hope that we feel it so that we would be drawn to our need for Jesus, to our security in Jesus, to be reminded of Jesus' sufficiency. God, and as we embrace the grace that you pour out on us, may you continue to transform us so that we would fix our eyes on Christ and so that we would pursue one another, maturing one another, warning one another, teaching one another, applying wisdom in daily life with one another so that we would present one another mature in Christ. That is more like Jesus. May our heart for one another and our heart for ministry be Christ-centered. May we walk in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. May we search your scriptures so that we would grow in our understanding, so that we would grow to know you more, so that we would grow to desire Jesus more. We don't need less Bible. We need more Bible. Our hearts are prone to wander, and we feel it. Spirit, would you draw us to yourself through your word? God, I pray that our hearts would be convicted this morning. I pray that we will have been challenged and I pray that we would be compelled to praise you loudly this morning. God, we are so thankful for you because of Christ. We are thankful for Jesus because he saved us. He has restored us to you. And he promises to never leave us. And, and the proof of that is in you, Holy Spirit. So would you continue to guide us as we worship in song and in praise? We ask this in Jesus' name.